I have two books, actually. Uh, the first one is Voyage of Purpose. And uh, in Voyage of Purpose, I share my near-death experience and then the journey to integrating it, how I learned to live with the experience after the fact, because, um, you know, these experiences aren't so, uh, you know, they're, they, they it definitely rocked my world. I was an engineer, and so my near-death experience just rocked my world, and I had to learn how to live with it. Um, the second book is um, one that I wrote after uh, my stage four lung and bone cancer. And it's about uh, contemplative meditation because I used that as um, one of the sources to help me to overcome my, my cancer. And, um, and it's about spiritual transformation. And it's kind of an interesting book because I, it, it's, um, it was written with 44 chapters and each chapter is, is devoted to a certain aspect to spiritual development. Mm -hmm. Okay, brilliant. And they can find them. Uh, do you have a website or is it just on Amazon they can find? Uh, they can go on any of the Amazon sites or, um, you know, the UK Amazon, mm -hmm. US Amazon, they're, they're, they're listed there. They're on there. Okay, brilliant. So um, you say you started off as an engineer, so I imagine you'd never really thought of anything near-death experience related or religion based had you really thought much about that before no i i didn't have any experience um i i, I hadn't even heard of near-death experience before my experience i was i was really really involved in um in in what my career was was undersea exploration um i was you know a commercial diver but also the chief engineer of the research vessel so i mean that was my world um and it, you know, it was very grounded type of world. Mm. Did you grow up with any religious beliefs or as an atheist or um, just as indifferent? My my mom was agnostic, but um, and she was a single mom. So it was tough growing up uh, for because what she would do is she would place me with different families. And then she would find out that the different families weren't treating me very nice. And so then she would pull me out of that family and into another. Uh, but the funny thing was, was, many of those families had different religious beliefs, you know, um, mostly, well, no, they had, they had a variety of different uh, beliefs. And then at the age of 14, she brought me back into her family and, um, and she moved us to Arizona where um, in central Arizona, in a very small town, just outside Sedona, where, um, where I got to connect with mostly Native American kids because they were the only ones that I kind of related to because I was a New Yorker, long-haired, hippie-type guy, you know, and, uh, and and I didn't get along with the cowboys too well. And I didn't get along too well with the pacifist hippies that lived out there. So I was more New Yorker, a little more a street-tough type of person. And so uh, so I hung out with the Native American kids and um, and we got along just fine. And so there I was exposed to a different kind of spirituality that actually I, I think might have saved my life <laughs> because I really was a rogue at the time and, um, and I wasn't on a very healthy path, you know, uh, just because I didn't have any center, any, any, you know, 
being tossed around from one family to the next. It just really, I, uh, I was a wild child, you might say. Mm -hmm. So, um, the, the your near death experience triggered when you were um, out at sea, and we, we you weren't diving, where you were in a in a ship working as maintenance or something. Is that correct? Yeah, I was the engineer, and we were actually out uh, evaluating a remote operated submarine, an ROV. And um, and we were on our way back when a storm hit the California coast um, with 25 to 30 foot seas. And so it, it um, we were, you know, but some of the crew had to had to be relieved to go to LAX. They had flights out, um, some of the engineers. And so the captain asked me, uh, normally I don't leave the ship to run up, but because the seas were kind of rough that night, he thought that maybe I, because I knew the harbor better than any of the mates that we had on crew that day. So, um, so he asked me to go along and I was just navigating. I wasn't uh, steering the boat, but I was up in the bow of this small Zodiac. It's a rubber craft. And, um, but it has a huge engine on the back. I mean, this thing, this thing could scoot in the water. It had a lot of power and, and we used to use it to retrieve submarines. So, so it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a, a little craft. And there were five of us in the, in the, in the Zodiac on our way into the Harbor. But, um, but, but we, we uh, didn't realize the Harbor had blown us South. I mean, the, the, the storm yeah, had the blown storm, us yeah. South. Yeah. Mm-hmm. About um, almost a mile. And um, we ran into a breaker zone and about a mile off the coast, we hit this breaker zone that, um, that we, we drove right off a 25 footer. And, um, <clears throat> and so I yelled at the mate to turn it around. And as we turned around, you could look up, you could see the next one was coming and it came right down on top of us. And um, it just, uh, <laughs> hmm. it wasn't pretty. <laughs> so when you say a breaker zone, what is that exactly? Well, you know, when the, when the seafloor comes up a little bit, swells up, it creates um, waves huge waves this is a in fact this this area was a really well-known surfing area on the west coast of of the u.s and um and so with the with the big storm offshore it was creating these huge huge waves that were those curly you know the ones that surfers you know dream about right well you don't want to be under one when it's coming down because it's not a not a pretty sight because so uh so our boat was uh, was capsized, and I was thrown into the water as a result of that uh, of that wave hitting us from mm. above. <clears throat> and then the experience began, I believe, as you began to drown. Yeah, that's where. Well, I drowned. Um, uh, even trained as a as a diver, I I didn't panic or anything like that. It's kind of it's kind of funny. I have this calm sense that comes over me when I'm <laughs> when I'm in a real bad place, but the uh, I eventually drowned. I couldn't hold my breath any longer because the wave had pushed me down so far and just tumbled and tossed me to the point of uh, I had I had totally lost orientation. And it was at, this was at night as well, so there was there wasn't you couldn't see the surface, you know. So it was just just you know didn't, pushing didn't know me around. Like, mm. Sorry, didn't know which way to go to go up. No, no, yeah. and and so. It, you know, the worst thing would be to try to swim and, and be swimming down or something, you know. So so the, the best thing was to hang on to your life vest and, and hope, you know, wait for it to bring you to the surface. Mm. 
Hmm. So, um, how how long ago was this that this incident took place? Actually, it was in. Um, it was tomorrow would be the anniversary, um, in nineteen eighty three. Hmm. So quite a, quite a while ago. Yeah, yeah, hmm. and um, and it's just as fresh today as it was that day. <laughs> <laughs> Many near-death experiences say that the memory is exactly the same. And it never changes. It, you know, like I have really, I can, I can, there might be two or three dreams that I've had in my life that were profound enough that I recall them kind of, you know, kind of, sort of. But, um, but this is, is, is a memory that is so crystal clear in so many details and in such length you know it's not like a memory of of your childhood it's not anything like the memory that that of a dream or of anything like that you know it's like i said there's probably two or three dreams that that maybe stood out in my life that that have stuck with me you know but um but this is the same level of detail yeah yeah mm. it's because it's such an expansive experience um i've, I've heard some of the the people that are into um, into science, you know, brain science and memory science and that sort of thing, that it um, the synapse it so overwhelms uh, the brain when we come back, because you know many of, of experiences are actually brain dead, you know, during the course of their experience, but when they come back, there's like a cellular memory or our non-local consciousness still retains the entire um the entire experience but it um but your brain doesn't have the synapses right away to be able to to recall that memory it takes time for those synapses to develop so that then that memory starts flooding back for experiencers for me i remembered most of it but there were some other little details um, about the life review that kept coming back. Like it was almost like deja vu on steroids, some of it. You know? mm -hmm. so it's almost as if it's some, some kind of trauma that you experience and then your brain kind of, I mean, in a negative trauma, your brain protects you by not allowing you to recall it until later on. So it seems a, a similar thing to that. Yeah, I would, I would agree. I think, I think it's, um, and, and I think it's, that's helpful because, because <laughs> when we come back, we have enough issues to deal with as an experiencer, um, you know, like what just happened. Uh, I was in, you know, I was talking to God. I, uh, you know, all these things that are just so unearthly that, um, that, you know, it's, it, even in today's society, you're afraid to speak out until you feel you're safe. You're, you're somewhere where you can, you can talk about it where you're safe and, and that people aren't going to judge you you know yeah indeed okay so you were tossed into the water and you began to drown so what happens then yeah well i um as soon as i i uh, breathed in salt water i popped out of my body into this this void this darkness that was um that was just quiet and calm you gotta realize i just came from this roaring sea that was just mm -hmm you know, and it was Apparently. cold and, mm -hmm. and, and all of that. So um, to find myself in this peaceful, calm, quiet, and I wasn't uncomfortable. I it just, you know, it, I was rather amazed, actually. I was, I was 
kind of curious, like, what is this? And it's kind of interesting because it didn't feel like I was alone. It felt like everything that ever was, was with, was with there with me. And there was this, so there was this overriding presence that you could feel while you were in this blackness, but the real, but it was more like a, so you were, you were, because everything was like nothingness, you had this opportunity to examine yourself a little bit, you know? So it was, it's kind of hard to describe this void because it's, it's nothing like you've ever experienced here. You know, I've gone, I've, I've tried to simulate it with like deprivation tanks and things like that. And not, it's nothing it, close, nothing even no. close. Because in my imagination, when I think of being um, out of body in a black void of nothingness, I would imagine that would be a terrifying thing. Yeah, I, you know, it is for many experiencers, but for me, it wasn't because I was, I had just come from this really, really traumatic death, okay, into, into the void, kind of like thrown in, you know, and, um, and so to me, it was very curious, I, you know, in, um, in commercial diver training, we're, we're trained to under, know what oxygen deprivation is and, and all of that, you know, so we, they actually put us into a situation where, where we, you know, our oxygen levels decrease and we start to feel euphoric and all of that sort of thing. So that's commercial training, you know, but, um, <clears throat> but anyway, I, you know, I had gone so far beyond that, that um, I, I was just curious. I was incredibly curious. But then I saw a light and it started out as just this little pinprick. But you can imagine in absolute darkness, a pinprick of light is incredibly bright. And, and it felt like I was moving toward it. It was moving toward me. I never, I, I have yet to this day understood, what, but it felt like movement is all I can say. It felt like we were moving toward each other. And as I got closer, I saw that it was millions upon millions of fragments of light and they were all like of one mind they were they were you know moving in unison and and and, and kind of fashion. like a school of millions of fish yeah yeah just mm. like um yeah like if you saw a school of sardines in the ocean near the surface with the light reflecting off of them all the brilliant colors from their scales are all represented and they all move like they have one mind you know they all move in one direction and then the other. Well, this is kind of, but only infinite. Because as I got closer, this, <laughs> these fragments of light just went on and on and on and on. And as I was getting closer to it, I started feeling these waves of love. It was almost like a warm embrace of love. And it's still hard to talk about it even to this day. But the... Uh, but three fragments broke away and started to come toward me. And as they did, they were welcoming me home. And now I told you, I kind of had a, a fragmented childhood. You know, I, I really didn't have a sense of home, but I recognized these light beings as a family. Um, not like anything here, but a, but a family that I it felt like we had spent lifetimes together. It was, I mean, it just set, felt so familiar. And, um, 
And so this, this, and eventually a dozen came to greet me and, um, and they were all welcoming me home. And it was the most love I think I've, I've ever felt to, uh, to this, you know, before and after. It's the most love that I've ever felt. Hmm. So was this all still taking place in the location of the void? Well, I was outside of the light. I was coming out of the void and, and at the threshold of these fragments of light. And also at this point, you know, I tried, I looked at myself, I tried to look at myself and my consciousness actually sped away from my, my being, uh, you know, cause I didn't have a physical body, but my being and I, and, and my consciousness turned around and looked at me and I was becoming a fragment of light. So it was kind of, and that was a little, a little weird because it was like the minute I, my consciousness desired to see something, it, it wasn't, it wasn't restrained to just my physical or there was no physical. So it, it, this is so hard to explain sometimes, but it was, um, you know, but your, your vision or, or your perception was able to leave your location. Right. Able, you know, so. so did you have a sense of kind of a non-physical body if you look down would you see something resembling a body in the void? um it was more of of a light body um it, it didn't have the actual defined figures of a um of a person of a humanoid but um but there were a there was a perception of eyes it was one thing that I could see. And when I, when I saw these other light beings, I still recognized them as people that I had spent lifetimes with. There was still that. And, um, and eventually they kind of communicated to me and we all moved in unison into the light, into this area. And it felt very, uh, spherical, like this giant ball, and we went into it, this ball of light, where I started to have a life review. And I started to relive my life. And my soul family, as I call them, were reliving it with me. And I got to experience every interaction in my life, but not only through my perception, my point of view, but I got to feel it through everyone I'd ever interacted with through their point of view. Um, and like I said, I was, wasn't a real nice guy. I wasn't a bad guy, but I wasn't, I, you know, I, yeah, I was pretty yeah. brash. I, I didn't, I really didn't care about other people. Mm -hmm. um, I was uh, a survivor. Understandably I, so with your background. Yeah, I had, I had to stand up for myself in order to get anywhere in this world up until that point. And so I didn't trust other people. I didn't, in fact, I probably didn't. In fact, I know I didn't have a, a very high regard for myself even. And so, um, so the, the life that I had led and the interactions, I got to see how I had affected people in that way. But I also got to see, so I saw the negative, but I also got to see that every once in a while, I would do something with loving intention that would create these huge ripples and affect people even more profoundly than when I did something terrible, you know? And so that really struck me 
that, I mean, and, and I just, it was very heartfelt when I would do something like that. Because we're not always bad. I mean, we don't, none of us perceive ourselves as bad people. And we do have, you know, love for others and for things, you know. So, so when, we, when we come from that place of love, it, it has a lot more energetic push, a lot more energetic um, energy just behind it in order to affect change. Because there's a positive intention behind the action. I believe so. I believe so. When you have a, a, a loving intention behind your actions, it, it has more energy to affect change. And so you would get to see this and it would, and it would appear almost like ripples of, uh, you know, of after effects, you know, like you would say something to someone or you would do something for someone. And then that someone would then, you know, right. feel it in their heart. Yeah. It's and, like a chain of. of yeah. Yeah. It was it was incredible to watch how it how it could affect change, and so and that really really uh, stuck with me. That that part of the life review really was incredibly important to me. So anyway, it just uh, um, it, it went on like that and went on and on, and then I finally reached a point where um, where I wasn't um, you know I I I had died. But it continued. <clears throat> My life continued. And that was a little disoriented in its own way because I was, uh, you know, I didn't have any, I, I didn't have any, um, any foundation for it. No, know? no. So, you'd, only had, you'd only known your life up till your, your death point. So yeah, that yeah, was... that was all very crystal clear. And then when we got past that threshold, it was, it was like, I like to say it was like looking down a, a, almost like a corridor and, um, and everything in the center of the corridor was fairly uh, in focus. It was in focus and, and, and relatable, but there was also beyond the corridor was this periphery that was out of focus, but I could turn my uh, attention right or left and and it just felt like I had the uh, I had the free will to deviate from the corridor you know and so like I said it was a little disorienting but my my family loved me they supported me and we we kind of traversed down this this uh, this corridor which when you say family so you mean the, the soul family or yeah yeah the, yeah the, the, the other light beings that were with mm -hmm. me experiencing this with me and um and they were experiencing the same way i was with all this you know all these multiple fragments of consciousness um you know for going off in all these different directions all at once it was it was quite intense so you're able but, to split your consciousness up and to have Are, simultaneous, so you're able to split your awareness up to have um, multiple yes. experiences at once. Yes. What was, so, what was that experience like? Well, can you you can imagine? Okay, so you're um, you're out with your friends, and you're having a good time. Everybody's being nice, <laughs> but you get to experience everyone in the crowd. Okay. You get to you get to feel what they're having, what they're worried about, what they're happy about. 
So your, your actual awareness is fragmented into these multiple streams of awareness all at the same time. And you're experiencing from all these different points of view all at once. Mm, very difficult to imagine. It is difficult to imagine and it's intense to experience. Um, but, it, but at the same time, because when, when we're out of our body, we our, our consciousness is able to expand to its full, I call it its totality, where we have this ability to be able to do that. And when we're in that state, everything seems so simple and efficient. It, it, it's hard to explain, but even the multiple streams of consciousness just seems so simple, mm. so flawless. So that's part of consciousness's actual nature, which is restricted here. Yes, yes. Within this physical being, we are, our consciousness is restricted because I believe that uh, our consciousness doesn't just reside in our, in our mind. I believe that it's, our mind is one receptor, our heart is another receptor, and I believe even our gut ganglia is a third receptor and that we, we receive information from our consciousness, but because of the physical limitations of this body, we can only take so much input. Hmm. Which is kind of a, a difficult view to express in the days of modern materialism and, and different things like that. <laughs> Very much so, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, even, even, in, um, even in some spiritual communities, it's still kind of hard to, you know, they may not have made that leap yet. Um, but in some research communities, they're, they're exploring this. So, um, you know, I, I, I hold out that there's, uh, you know, we'll, we'll learn more and more mm, as we sure. evolve. Okay, so you, you've had the life of you and then you're going down this corridor of multiple experiences. Um, are these experiences of, of life beyond your physical death point? Yeah, at the time, I didn't quite realize, but yeah, they were, um, they were uh, my future life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and All right. So what, what was to come in physical life? Yes. What was to I come see. in physical life? And I finally reached a certain point where all the, the light itself, all these millions upon millions of fragments spoke in unison. And they said, this is not your time. You must return. And I, I flatly said, no way. Um, I said, no, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I, you know, I've got, I'm feeling love like I've never felt before. I have a family that I didn't even know existed. And, you know, is more family than anybody I know on, you know, yeah. in my physical yeah. life. So just, and just briefly, when you, when you say they said this, how did they say this? It was a resonance. It was, it, this is really cool because <clears throat> it was this almost parental kind of loving resonance that just kind of like was is very deep it was very um right to your soul right to your to your core essence it just resonated into your essence and was um and was so clear and understood so it was more it was more a, a, a feeling of it's now time to go back rather than a, an actual um yeah but feeling. it was it, but it was so expansive, um, more than just a feeling. Um, when we have feelings here, they're they're quite restrictive compared to this. This was um, this was like suddenly a flash of being connected to everything, all at once, and they all focused themselves at you, 
and are communicating to you in unison. So it's like, <laughs> it's like every soul that ever was or ever will be right. is focused on yeah. you in that so millisecond. Kind of like when you have a magnifying glass with the sun and you pinpoint it to one specific area, all that information yeah. focused on, on that one area. Yeah, sort of you're, you're streaming it all mm. into one, into one, at one point. Yeah. And then, and I said no way because I knew my body was broken and I didn't really want to go back to it. And, um, <clears throat> but then it, it spoke one more time. It said, um, you must return. You have a purpose. And again, with that, with that expanded consciousness and that thought of purpose, suddenly I understood the purpose. And with understanding, I, I immediately went to acceptance. I totally accepted it. The minute I reached acceptance, I found myself outside my body in the ocean, watching it still being tumbled and tossed in the ocean. Mm. Was the, your non-physical body in the ocean or above the surface? Or My body was under the water still, being tumbled and tossed. I was outside observing it. And to this day, I kind of wondered about that for a long time because there was no light. It was this was at night. So how I could see my body clearly in the water, you know, was was something as well. But not only was I there, but the three original light beings that that greeted me were with me. And we were all observing my body as it was, you know, being tumbled and tossed. So it was kind of like an out-of-body experience in a way. Well. It was an out-of-body experience, but um, but we um, observed the a wave uh, push some of the wreckage of the zodiac uh, near my body, and the bow line actually wrapped itself around this arm and um, this wrist, this arm. And when a, another set of waves hit it, it the 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 wreckage popped up. It it had some air left in one of the rubber pontoons, and so. As it popped up, it cinched that line around me and it yanked my arm up, actually dislocated my shoulder and this thumb. But I didn't feel anything because I wasn't in my body. I was just observing this. And I it was almost followed. as if it was, yeah, almost as if it was orchestrated to do that by the spirits around you. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I we followed it up and um and I was kind of in awe because we've talked about this expansive consciousness, but I, I felt like I was so much bigger than that body. The body just seemed so small to me. I was kind of in wonder of how, how is the enormity of me going to fit in there? You yeah, know? Yeah. Yeah. And so that was kind of my ponder as I, as I was observing this happening. And when we got to the cert, when the body got up to the surface, it got all tangled up in, in the lines and, um, and that's when my soul family gave me a gentle push and I found myself back into my body. Mm. Did you notice any, um, something that's commonly reported in out-of-body experience, not so much near death, but out-of-body experiences, is a silver cord that connects? <clears throat> you know, yeah, there, I, I believe there is. Um, in my second experience, I, I observed that more because I was being a little, because it's very faint. That cord is very faint. It's It's not like a... It's not like a solid rope or something like that. Mm. It's just this this uh, very, very faint cord. And um, 
I, I saw it in my second experience more so than in the first. In the first, I was in really gaga awe at everything that was happening to me. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. So I was having that. a hard time taking it all in, um, especially right after I, I got back. And, and so, you know, you're there, you're trying to expel this salt water that's, you know, gotten into your lungs and, and uh, I could hear my friends, or the other my you know my mates that were in the ship, and they were uh, they were looking for me. I'd been gone for a while, and they'd been looking for me, and they stayed in that breaker zone looking for me, which was a dangerous place to be. Yes, absolutely. Do you know how long you were underwater? They they claimed it was somewhere between fifteen and eighteen minutes. Right. So regardless, that's uh. A long enough time for you to certainly have been dead. I know as a commercial diver, I could hold my breath. Best time would be three minutes. Best time. And that's a long time. And that's after I hyperventilated for quite a while, you know, and then, and then, you know, you, you just, you have to breathe. So um, I didn't get a chance to hyperventilate. <laughs> this happened so fast that you were in the water, you know? And, and so, yeah, I, and, and I was, ice cold. I mean, I didn't feel it because I was numb. My whole, I was just numb. My entire body was numb and I was having a hard time staying on the surface. Um, and, and so I realized because when you come back, you still feel like you're partially connected to that greater consciousness. It feels like you're half there and half here. And so I knew there was something wrong with my life vest because all of them had popped up to the surface right away. Why didn't I, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. and so I opened up my vest and I looked at it and it was one of the old World War II May West type uh, life vests, the ones that were these big pillows, big orange right. pillows, yeah. right? Um, and the fiber lining had become saturated with salt water. And so it was, it was actually dragging me down. So it was supposed to save me, actually drown me. And, um, and so I, I let go of that and it, boy, it, it sunk, right? You know, and we all, uh, we all grabbed onto what was left of the floatsome and we swam into shore. You know, we had another mile to swim with a dislocated shoulder and thumb yeah, and, and just hang on, you know, it's kind of, and after dying and coming back. So it was, um, I was in shock at that point. I, I'll honestly admit that I was in. Yeah, class. yeah. It was. I don't remember much of the swim coming in. Now, isn't that really weird? I remember all of the aspects of the death, but then that the 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 part of fighting for your life, I can I kind of remember. But uh, there's a few few things that happened during that stick out. But uh, other than that, because that was a mile swim, that's a long time. It takes a while to swim. Yes, that is a long swim. Yeah. <laughs> yes, definitely. So that was the first experience. And that was um, 1983. At 1983. So when, when did the second experience take place? 1994. And what, what was that? That was, I was actually, it wasn't a near death experience. It was a near death like experience um, or similar experience. Depends on the nomenclature of your day. Um, but I was, um, I was on a retreat with, um, you know, the, the time from the first one and the second one, I, I had trouble dealing with the experience. So I, um, I, I kind of shoved it 
as, as much of it as I could, you know, as far back in my mind as I could. And I just accepted a few little things uh, that, uh, that helped me to, to deal with it um, because I didn't feel like I could share. I didn't share it. I shared it with my first wife, had a bad reaction, and I didn't feel like I could share it with my mates. So I, I self-isolated um, for 11 years until that second experience. And the second experience, I had changed quite a bit. I didn't even realize how much I'd changed, but I'd changed. And I had had connected with this group, a spiritual group. And I quit my life at sea. I became a manager of uh, dialysis programs in, in central New York State. And <clears throat> and they were going on this, the spiritual group was going on this uh, retreat back to Sedona, Arizona. And so, I, you know, well, I grew up there. And this is just like old stomping grounds for me. So I was I was excited to go with this group. And I thought, well, I'll spend a little time with the group, but also I'm gonna hit some of the old trails of my childhood and um, and go, you know, and, and enjoy myself. And the first day there, they wanted to have a meditation in one of the spiritual spots there. And um, <clears throat> I, I'd been there many times. And so I knew this one place that I used to like to sit where you could sit with your back up against the stone and you could look out over the vista of the valley. Mm -hmm. And I was like, nice. mm, I'm going to go up there and I'm going to meditate. And when I lived there before, some of the grandmothers had taught me how to meditate, which was more, wasn't like um, traditional meditation. It was more like vision questing type of meditation. Okay. And so they had taught me how to go within myself. And so I thought, well, I'll go do that. And, um, <clears throat> and so I went up there and I started to go inward when I heard the light speak to me. And it said, return to the light. And I, there was no stopping it. <laughs> I suddenly, I was in the void, the void to the, you know, saw, saw the light, my soul family, the life review. Only this time in the life review, I had lived in 11 years. And I got to see that 11 years. And the change that that first experience had, had created in me, even when I had denied a lot of it and had pushed it down and didn't want to remember. But I had accepted, uh, I, I used to call it acceptance, tolerance, and truth. Acceptance of myself, tolerance of, of others around me, and truth that is not so much just um, factual truth, but truth that resonates with your heart, which is more of a personal type of truth, okay? <clears throat> and it has to it has to deal with with um, with with our essence, with who we are, that sort of thing. So, just accepting that had um, had you know catapulted me into a huge amount of change in those eleven years. And I had um, and during those eleven years, I started having these insights that I didn't know where they came from. It wasn't something I'd learned. It wasn't something I'd lived in life. And so as an engineer, I was testing it all the time to see if is, is this real information? Is it reliable? Is it veridical? You know? So these were kind of precognitive experiences. Yeah, they were. Mm -hmm. And, um, and some of them were quite intense and some were, but I didn't have any control over it. I would just get these, you know, these impressions that would just suddenly be there. And I would know it. 
It would be, I used to call them knowings because I didn't have any other word for it. But so that was during that 11 year period. But then after the second experience, <laughs> those uh, precognitive episodes started to have a voice. I actually heard, I had conversations with spirit. And I recognized that they were actually the voices of my soul family, the beings that greeted me, that I recognize as family. And so they each have their strengths and they all, and, and many people nowadays, I think they would call them their guides or spirit guides or angels. They're, you know, I, I don't, I don't really care what name you want to put on it. I, I agree with all of that, you know, um, some feel bigger and more present than others. You know, they might be angels. Some feel like they're just almost a confidant, you know, so they, you know, I would call those guides. Um, but to me, they were all family. Yeah, sure. So what, um, what pushed you to, from, from that to do the energy work that you do now on the, is it Dharma Talks? Yeah, Dharma Talks is my website, <clears throat> dharmatalks.com. So um, when did you first become kind of interested in how the energies of the body are, are formatted, how, it, how they're structured and how to in, intervene with them? Well, it's interesting when this, this, um, this spiritual group, uh, after my second experience, they used to have a spring and summer, uh, they used to have a summer conference and a spring retreat. And, and during these, they had these amazing teachers that uh, from all over, all over the world that would come and would teach different things. And so I, I took some classes, um, you know, some summer classes uh, with some of these teachers uh, on, you know, uh, shiatsu and, and, and things like that, um, energy, a little bit of energy medicine, things like that. But I never really applied it in my life. I never, you know, until um, uh, 2000, November 2000, I was um, diagnosed with stage four lung and bone cancer. It actually went into my spine and ate away two and a half bones of my thoracic and, and my spine collapsed. And that's when, you know, <laughs> that's when you knew trouble was, was about. Yeah. And sta stage four is kind of the end stages, isn't it? It is. It is. It's, it, and they weren't even going to treat me. They were going to just uh, give me some morphine and some Percocet and make me as comfortable as possible. And they told me to get my affairs in order. Yeah. So they were going to put you on palliative care. Yep. Yep. And, um, but uh, at that time I had become the manager of uh, one of the departments within the hospital. And so I had uh, said, no, we're going to treat it because one of the things that I saw in my life review or life preview was that I was going to have cancer and that I was going to live beyond it. And so I, and, and my guidance at that time, excuse me, <coughs> my guidance at that time was telling me that, you know, I was weighing the, um, the options that I had. And they wanted me to do traditional therapy as well as balance it out with some holistic approaches. 
And by this time, I'd very, I'd become very involved with spiritual communities. And so I had people coming out of the woodworks offering all kinds of therapies. Um, some of them were a little, uh, you know, esoteric. Well, they were out there. Um, one, one person and I, God bless her. She, she had her heart in the right place and everything, but she wanted me to do this uh, jumping up and down on a trampoline. Well, my spine had just collapsed. I don't think that that is the healthiest thing to <laughs> no, do. You know? Absolutely not. Uh, so you have to weigh these options, you know, I mean, you have mm -hmm. to, what, what's going to work for you. What worked for me may not be the best option for everyone else, but, but you, I think, you know, we all have that ability to weigh our options. We all, we all have an intuitive sense about us. It's a matter of, of allowing it to help us and to inform us, you know. We have to give it permission to do that. And once we do that, then, um, you know, we can, we can look at the options that are available. And my spirit communication was very clear you know it wanted me to do traditional medicine and to balance out the uh, holistic approaches and i understood it because i knew it was part of that purpose that i had been told you know and i knew that there was a purpose for me to get beyond the stage four lung and bone cancer mm. so just um, from a physiological point of view then without the holistic approaching just the traditional medicine what what would you say was the likelihood of your survival from stage four lung and bone cancer at that stage that's 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 a great question because i worked in the hospital i knew how to get my five-year survivability statistics i knew where to go to get that and so i went online and this is in 2000 so i i was using the internet as it was in those days <clears throat> and um and i went to the website where where you could do that and i plugged in my you know my uh, prognosis and and my computer would crash and so i would okay you know the the blue screen of death you know yeah yeah and so i would i would you know take everything down reboot it go back and go you know re-go into the website start all over again and the same thing would happen <clears throat> so it was like okay you don't want me to know what, what the survivability <laughs> yeah. statistics are, right? And so, but later I went back, okay, after, after I survived the cancer, um, I did go back and, and I had one-tenth of one percent survivability to live beyond five years. So one-tenth of, of one percent, so 0.1 percent chance. It's 0 0.001. And just out of interest, what the computer that you used to um, check the statistics before you survived, was it the same computer? Was it a different computer? It probably was. Probably the because, same. Because I was, I was only in treatment for six months before, before I was cancer-free. So I'm, I assume it was the same. I, I don't know for certain, but I, I'd be pretty certain that it sure. was the same computer. Yeah, yeah. It makes it make sense that you probably they probably didn't want you to know because as soon as you start having that information, you start to maybe doubt yourself and, and your intention begins to wane somewhat. Yeah, I really, I, I feel that I was lucky because I had that pre-awareness that I was going to survive this. And, and so I didn't have doubt. Everyone around me did, and they all thought I was in denial because they all were expecting me to die within six or seven weeks. But I knew I wasn't, and so, so it was, you know, it was it was uh, it was kind of an interesting period. But 
I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It was it was the most suffering I think I've ever gone through in my entire life. <clears throat> the near death experience in the ocean that was horrendous, but having your spine collapse and stage four lung and cancer, going through chemo and radiation all at the same time. That is as you know, and the pain of a of a you know of a spine that's collapsed was just unbelievable. Unbelievable. I can imagine it would be. So were your doctors surprised when you came out cured? <laughs> yeah. In fact, they, they never used, um, cause we're here, we're 20 years out now. Right. And, um, and, and just my last oncology appointment, cause I go once a year still looking for a full mm, checkup, mm. you know, because they, they suppose you need to, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. They, they figured it was going to come back at some point, you know? And, um, and so 20 years out, um, my oncologist finally said, you know, I think at this point we can call it a cure. <laughs> <laughs> but up until up until then, they never used that word around me. No, no. So it's effectively a cure that was 99.9% .9 certain to not happen. Yeah, yeah. They said it, if, if there's another occurrence, it would be a new occurrence. It wouldn't be a reoccurrence. Right. I see. So do you put that down then to the uh, holistic approaches that you took or down to the fact that it was just something that you knew was not going to win and it was just a lucky maybe medical situation? I think it was a combination of the both. I, I think I, the, I, because I know that there was purpose for me to go through that suffering because now I can counsel people that are going through chemo and radiation and all of that because I've been there. I can empathize with them. I understand their hopes, I understand their fears, I understand what their family is going through. Um, and so the, I think the purpose was for me to actually experience that so that I could counsel people on that level. Right, sure. Okay, so from... And part of the holistic was energy work. And this is where I really, because circling back to your other question about, you know, when, when did I become really interested? Yeah, I had toyed around with it, you know, in, in the in-between years, but I really didn't, um, I didn't really explore it as a modality until I had to use it on myself. And that's where I, I had spirit guidance that helped me. And um, I call it white light energy work because what I do is, um, Fortunately, in the years after my second experience and before the cancer, I had I had a couple uh, near-death experiencer mentors. And one, Margaret Keene, taught me how to go back into the light. And that and that we have that ability to return to the light at any time. It's just a matter of finding our own doorway, our own key to be able to do it. And so she actually brought, walked me back into the light and showed me that this is, this is something that we you know, have the ability to do. And so Margaret, <clears throat> because she taught me that, I used that in, the, um, in, in learning how to facilitate my own. Um, and, and there was quite a bit of great guidance there. Some of the things that, um, that I was taught was um, 
don't try to you know use visualization because visualization and, and intention are incredible tools that we have available to us and so use visualization but don't visualize it gone because that creates a void within your body and our body is always we have to live within the physical limitations that we have here as you know in this world that we reside in and so um to to create a void is is very dangerous within our body. So our body is always seeking hemostasis, equilibrium. And so uh, to it taught me to use a feather to wear away the cancer through visualization with a feather slowly and a little methodically over time. And so I did that for three months, just a little at a time, and. Um, and eventually I got communication from spirit that, um, you know, that it was, it was gone, but it was, I was using this white light energy to, you know, to reduce the, the cancer. And um, it took a while to get the doctor, it took another three months to get the doctors to actually do a PET scan to be able to, to examine it because they, they felt that putting me through that was just extra trauma because they, they really didn't feel I was going to survive. And so they, you know, they were honoring my wishes to treat it, but they really felt that I was, you know, just just causing unnecessary suffering on yourself. Yeah, creating, yeah. yeah. So, you know, and and I can respect that that was their belief, you know. It's just I feel I I had, you know, a little better knowledge than you know, <laughs> I had a little better understanding of my own case. So when they finally did, they did a PET scan and they, you know, so they scanned my body. Um well, no, first they did a CAT scan and it showed that, you know, the cancer wasn't there. It was, it was there, but the cells were dead. And so that's when they did the PET scan and they found that all the, all the cancer cells weren't active. And so, um, but I had to live with, they wouldn't do any corrective spine surgery for over a year. So you still had that collapsed spine pain to deal with. Yeah, I had to live with that for a year before they would do, uh, you know, correct so, surgery. Yeah. So now you work on um, healing other people through their energy bodies. So how do you? How does that work? What's the? Well, I, I learned the mechanism of that. Yeah, I learned that um, in 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 my healing journey, I learned that uh, that all healing and energy work is done in the present moment. It's not really about the past. It's not really about the future. So you have to look at where you are mentally, emotionally, physically, and spiritually, because all of those facets come into play into who we are in this moment. And, and so when I have a, a client, I, I talk to them for about maybe 15 minutes, and we talk about where they are mentally, emotionally, physically, and spiritually. And as we're having that talk, I'm starting to sense and feel their essence. And I'm usually starting to receive some information during the conversation. And so I might- When, when you say, sorry, when you say you're receiving their essence, what's that experience? Well, it's, it's, kind of like um, I, I start to feel that expansiveness a little bit and it's kind of like a shimmer 
it's not total connection, but it's, it's, I start to, to be able to, in the back of my mind while I'm talking to them and while we're having a conversation and I'm looking at them. Well, a lot of times I like to do the healing on the phone because I don't want to see like here in a zoom call, I would do that with a counseling uh, client when we're doing spiritual counseling or coaching. But, um, but when I'm doing energy work, I'd rather just be on the phone or on Skype or on zoom, but without our videos, without videos on. Because I really want to listen to, to them speak. I want to listen to that. Something about the vibration of their voice and everything helps me to tune into them without the distraction of body language. So, and I prefer, I prefer either, you know, a phone call or, or, you know, so sometimes it's on Skype, sometimes it's on Zoom if it's an international call, but in the U.S. I just use a regular phone call because I don't have an international plan. So, um, <clears throat> so anyway, I, I listen to them and I start to feel their essence. And then usually I will give them a, um, a breath exercise. And I do that on purpose because I found that uh, the, if they can meditate and focus and find some stillness, that that creates an open vessel that makes my connection with them that much easier. And so while they're meditating, it would be the same thing if you were here and I was doing it in person, you'd be laying on my table and I would be playing some meditation music or something and I would give you a breath exercise to focus yourself. And then, and then I, um, I go into the light and I, the minute I go into the light, after we have had that conversation, their light, their essence is right there. And so, so when you go into the light, is that the same experience as you had on the first near-death experience and on the second? Very similar, only, um, only I'm not going there because I'm dying and I need to transition, okay? So instead, I'm just going into the light, into, and it's more my light. In other words, what I'm really doing is I'm transitioning into my totality of light. In this life, I believe that we only carry maybe 10, 20, 30% of our light with us, okay, depending, and it goes up and down depending on our need. And, and I could talk, that would be a whole other conversation about how, how I see that, how I see that working. But anyway, um, but when I go into the light, when I transition, I go into that 100% of my light essence, okay? And then I can communicate with your light essence, all right? And, <clears throat> and then your light essence actually directs me. And I can visualize your physical body and then um, sometimes your guides, sometimes deceased loved ones are there, sometimes angels, um, and they appear to me and they, along with your essence, speak to me and guide me through uh, basically whatever your needs are, whatever your, your, your body is calling for. And, it, it can, and, it, and it, the neat thing is, is it's not all physical. It can be emotional. It can be spiritual, spiritual blocks. It can be, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter because 
um, because we're working on all those levels at the same time. Mm -hmm. Sure. And of course, they're all interconnected into one system. So, right. indeed. Right. So, uh, at this point, when you go into the light, are you are you still in your physical body? Are you aware of your physical body, or are you kind of out in this more expanded state, unaware, um, uncaring? It of what used to be. It, it's a, it's evolved over time because I've been doing this for a while now. Um, you know, because my cancer ended, you know, twenty years ago, and so I've been doing this quite a About bit since then. Yeah. Um, and, um, and so it's evolved. Uh, I would say at first, yeah, it was like going into the light and it was a little hard at first. You have to almost anesthetize yourself to, to it because in this physical body, we have all of our emotions. Okay. And in the light, there's a level of detachment from emotion. Okay. Because we see everything so clearly and so simply, but when we're in our physical body, if we were exposed to the love that is present in the light in our physical body, we just want to cry. We just want to cry with joy because it's, <laughs> it's so powerful, you know? So I had to, when Margaret first took me there, I mean, I came back and I was just a, a puddle of tears, you know, you, it was, it was just so joyous and so, so loving that, you know, your emotions just overwhelm you. So the first few times I had to kind of learn how to go there and, and, and detach a little bit. Okay. So yes, it was at first, it was very much like, but now when I go there, I cross the threshold, but I'm still very, very connected to my butt in the seat here. Okay. I, I know what my body is doing. I, you know, and I know what's going on around my body, but my awareness is in the light. My awareness mm -hmm. is in the light. So it's a is little that, different than it used to be. And does, do you find that the emotion that you experience while you're in that light does have an effect and make you tear up? I'll tell you, I come way? out after with some clients and I'm, and cause I always write up my impressions of what happened while I was in the light, you know, and a lot of times, you know, I'm, I'm <laughs> I, you know, there's a lot of tears there sometimes, especially when someone's guide shows me how much they love them and how much they're supporting them or something like that. And it's like, oh my gosh, you know. <laughs> so how do you then from the light, how do you then attach onto the, the energy of the, of the client? Well, it, I don't, you know, when I connect to their light, their essence, it, I can see their body and I don't, I don't totally understand how that works, but I can see their physical body. And so we're able to direct the, their light energy into the areas that need the attention the most. And a lot of times it, um, it sometimes it's, it's nothing like what they thought they wanted, but it was exactly what they needed. Yeah. See, and, and how do you identify which areas that is that needs work? I'm directed. I I don't. I just allow. I'm just a kind of a channel. I just allow it. Um, I don't attach to their energy. I just, uh, as directed, I just um, I just uh, help it to flow into the areas that it's supposed to go or channels it's supposed to go into. Sometimes it goes into meridians. Sometimes it goes into 
um, more more of an energetic type of thing. Sometimes it's physical, sometimes it's energetic, sometimes it's spiritual. So it's it's always a little different. It's never the same, never. I've, I've been doing this for quite a few years. I've got hundreds of clients and I can almost honestly say, I, I don't think I've ever had the same thing happen twice. I'm, I'm constantly surprised and humbled by, um, by you know, some of the messages that, um, that I get for clients and then they say, oh my God, well, I never told you that. How did you know that, you know, type of things mm. and stuff like that. Sure. So are you directing their own energy from their higher? Yes. Onto themselves, right. So it's not your energy kind no. of mixing it. And no, no, I'm not mixing my energy with theirs. I'm, I'm only helping their energy to, to um, because a lot of times in life, <clears throat> we don't realize it, but we've blocked ourselves off from our own vital energy. You know, because we're so wrapped up in life circumstances that we we don't. And, and so sometimes we need some help. Sometimes you need a, an energy worker to help to to transition those blocks and barriers that we've put up in life. Sometimes I can see them. Um, I had a client just the other day that that said that spiritually she's you know, it was more of a spiritual healing and um, that spiritually she had felt these blocks. And so. I didn't go in looking for blocks, but um, this was one of the few times that I, I could actually perceive where where it was and, and and the why the root of it. You know, um, that that's not very common, though. No. Okay, so I suppose moving on to the uh, the unfortunate but real, but you know important aspect of this is that what do you say to those who say this is all nonsense this is all woo woo and anybody that charges for this sort of thing is a charlatan yeah so um, you know what i i think um i think a, a scent a, a bit of um skepticism is healthy i i believe in skepticism i'm i'm a firm believer that we all should be skeptical um i i, I don't want to live life with somebody some charlatan trying to take advantage of me so i know in my life because i Hey, I was an engineer. I didn't know, believe in any of this stuff before, you know, um, and before my experience. I think it's the, um, I think what you have to do is you have to look at the, um, how these experiences affect the experiencer. When you start to look at that, you start to see, what is it in the Bible? They say, judge them by their acts, you know. When you start to see how it changes a person, and how compassionate a person becomes afterwards, how they go searching for the love. Um, you know, some of these things are challenges actually for many experiencers because they come back and they, they experience this overwhelming love, but then now they want to, you know, they, they want to find it in, in yeah, life. Of course. And, um, and so, <clears throat> but it affects them in sometimes subtle ways, but over time in great ways. Um, and they, and they, and, and many come back with gifts. You know, I'm, I, I'm just one person and yeah, I developed a healing gift. Um, but I also have some precognitive gifts as well. Um, <clears throat> but many people come back with some amazing gifts. Some can communicate with animals. Some can, you know, there's just these amazing gifts that, that some of the experiencers, um, come back with. And what I find is um, is actually kind of telling is that 
there are common themes in these experiences, and they've um, and these themes have been, you know, uh, a part of human um, history for years and years and years, going back to ancient Greece and and all of that time. Okay, people have been having these experiences. Now, in the scientific community, we can't. We, it's still considered a phenomena because we don't, you know, it's very hard to prove something like this. But what I say is you have felt love at some point in your life, you have felt love. Now you cannot prove to me what that love looks like, what it feels like, what it tastes like. You can't tell me what that was, but you did experience it, you know? Well, it's very much like these experiences. It's not something that we can describe totally. And, and the descriptions that I'm giving you are just, just brushing the surface kind of, you know, it's, it's as best I can in the physical world that we live in. And I'm trying to relate it to physical type of, you know, circumstance. And, and so it's very, it's very hard to do that. Um, but we've all experienced love. And, and love is, is one of those things that I believe is the glue of the universe myself because it permeates everything. But only it only touches us when we focus our awareness on it. And that's when we're reaching out our consciousness beyond the physical into, you know, it doesn't matter, it could be the furniture around you. It could be something outside your window. Beauty has, has a great effect because it transitions that it's the bridge to love, you know, a lot of times. And what you find beauty in and what I find beauty in could be two different things altogether. And that's another one of those, you know, hard to describe. What is beauty? Mm. Yeah, it's a subjective thing. Yes, it? it's very mm. subjective. Mm. So... Uh... So I suppose one last area to touch on is um, when people talk of usually souls, which I suppose is the same thing we're talking about, consciousness or awareness, mm -hmm. many believe that that is only a human trait and that animals, wild animals and pets don't have that sort of thing. You know, don't they don't have, I suppose, afterlives or ability to communicate or energy or, or whatever. Uh, what do you think on that sort of opinion? Um, well... I know experiencers who, who would dispute that um, because they experienced, you know, interacting in their afterlife with animals and animals came and greeted them um, in the afterlife, that sort of thing. Um, <clears throat> I believe because we, we were talking about love and how love permeates into everything. It's a part of the animal kingdom as well the plant kingdom, the animal kingdom, the mineral kingdom. Um, it's a part of all of that. And so energetically, it has a resonance. Even a rock has resonance. I mean, look at quartz. We've used quartz. Quartz is a great example because we've used quartz because it compresses vibration. And that's why we, we started out with quartz radios because we could, we could, send a frequency through quartz and receive it through quartz, that sort of thing. Well, that's a stone, all right? It's a mineral. 
but it has vibrational attributes to it. We all have that. And it's all, you know, different levels of vibration. And so I would say that, you know, I, I believe that, um, and, and I've had experiences um, kind of like after death communication with deceased animals that I've loved, okay? They've come to me after, after they've passed. I've seen them, they've communicated with me in animal ways, not, not in a voice type way, but in, in animal ways, you know? Um, and, and so, you know, I believe that they do pass on. I believe they do have a consciousness of sorts because I really believe our consciousness is all part of that vibrational universe that, you know, unifies us all. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Seeking Eye Life Exploration Podcast. If you did and would like to continue following my research, please consider subscribing to my YouTube channel and following the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, Spotify and other podcast providers. You can also join our Facebook discussion group. You can find the link to this and other Seeking Eye online profiles at seeking-eye.com. Thank you.